You're listening to STEMcast, brought to you by McGill iGem. Dr. Jaswinder Singh is an associate professor in the Department of Plant Science at McGill. He earned his PhD from the University of Sydney and completed postdoctoral studies at the University of California, Berkeley. His research involves epigenetic silencing reversal and cysteine-rich proteins, redox regulation, and transcription factors involved in different plant phase transitions. Dr. Singh also directs the EdCERC Create program on genome editing and has received numerous accolades for his contributions to plant biology. All right, so to sort of introduce what you do and like who you are as a researcher, can you tell us a little bit about your research and what your lab does, or maybe like how the lab got started and um, what really got you interested in what you do? Okay, so you know, my name is Jaswinder Singh. I am uh, currently an associate professor in the Department of Plant Science. Uh, in the Faculty of Agriculture and Environmental Sustainability, Environmental Sciences. So basically, um, you know, I traveled a lot. Actually, I did my PhD from CSRO Plant Industry, Canberra, and University of Sydney uh, combined uh, system. And uh, before that, I did master's in plant breeding from Punjab Agricultural University, which is one of the top university involved in green revolution and other other things for uh, for the agriculture. So then from uh, Australia, I moved to UC Berkeley uh, to, to develop my understanding about genomics uh, and biotechnology further. And before coming to McGill at 2008 uh, and joined my position as a faculty member of the Department of Plant Science. So based on that, I, I acquired expertise in the field of plant breeding, in the field of genomics, and in the field of biotechnology. So that's the reason um, my interests are, I want to integrate all those technologies together to make sure that we can efficiently improve croplands, which are very important for the food security and environmental sustainability. And that's the just a general, general theme of my, my program, but we can discuss further as we go deeper into it. You can go ahead, Via. Okay. Um, so another question I have is, can you explain some of the current limitations in the field of study or some of the problems that you want to fix with your lab research? Sure, sure, sure. You know, so basically, you know, as you know, climate is changing, right? So you can see abrupt rain, abrupt floods, abrupt all those things. Uh, you know, so we know temperatures rising, right? So basically, it has a big impact on croplands, right? So, for example, if we don't do anything at the moment, we will not sustain, we will not able to sustain the agriculture in the changing scenario of climate. We have to be upfront. We have to come back to develop some new technology which which can make our croplands resilient to feed the world. Right, so as you know, the the population will be nine billion soon, right? So in in couple, in few years, right? So the so so basically that's uh, that's what I can see the limitation that even if, for example, I can give you one example. If you change, if there is an increase of or change of one degree temperature, it can affect the plant's reproduction huge way. If we have we are not selecting those plants for which can cope with that. We are we are gone, 
right? So I can even give you a real example from my parents' university, Punjab Agricultural University. I visited last year. And during the summer, the temperature rise, due to the temperature rise, at the time of grain filling, they lost 15% of the yield. 15% in the real, in, in the real data. So the, basically, if the trends are like that, we are all, you know, how can I say, ruined in a way, you know, how we can feed the world. Although, as it, as the population, we have to make them better yielded. And we can't afford low yielding thing or, you know, declining in the, uh, decline in the yield. Yeah, and that's really interesting because, you know, one thing I think we learn a lot about when we first learn about climate change is that there's certain thresholds. So there's 1.5 degrees warming versus two degrees warming and all those things can make really, really big differences. So, you know, it can make a big difference in flooding and it can make a big difference in sea levels. Specifically, I'm wondering what led you to have an interest in plant genomics and gene editing as ways to mitigate the effects of climate change on agriculture? Because I've heard about some other solutions like seawalls. Why specifically is it gene editing that you're the most interested in? Right. So, yeah, first of all, the gene editing is a very fascinating tool which can make, uh, which can improve the crop plants in a very fast way as compared to the traditional methods. So that's first of all one thing. And another thing is that because uh, I work at McGill University, I have a responsibility to work for my own country, Canada, and also my own, own um, province, Quebec. So, so basically, especially in the prairie regions of Canada at the moment from last many years, there is a very, very big problem because of the climate change. So I can give you one example. Have you ever heard pre-harvest sprouting? PHS, we call it PHS. Pre-harvest sprouting is a when the grains are being filled in a spike. And if there is a rain or there is a snow, and immediately after that, there's a high temperature, and which is happening all the time in these days, they will sprout from that spike. And if they are already sprouted, we don't have any yield. The starch is, you know, the, the breads will ugly and everything is gone. So the, basically, that that is one of the major projects which we, we are doing. But people have tried that for many, many years based on the traditional genetics, you know, quantitative genetics. But we cannot able to solve that problem. But now, based on genetics or epigenetics tool, we identified some of the genes. If we fine tune them or tweak them a little bit, we can make them tolerant, right? So, so that's why gene editing or CRISPR-based gene editing is so fascinating that you, you can develop something without introducing any foreign DNA and just by tweaking and tuning those genes, you can make the crops resilient and better. And that's how we can solve the problems. This is These are the example-based, evidence-based examples which I'm giving you. But there are a lot of other things why the gene editing and uh, these things are revolutionary. And, and you know, I, I would like to use them in, in my program. Yeah, and that's really amazing. One thing I want to add to that, uh, and one thing that I thought about when you were framing this issue is that climate change is an issue that proceeds much faster than the rate of evolution. So we used, you know, back before we had any access to genetic tools, one thing that we would do a lot is just selectively breed crops for the best traits. And over time, that leads to the crops that we know. 
But now that we have these gene editing tools and technologies, we have something that has the power to match the speed of climate change and really address these crop issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I also think it's really interesting. I grew up at high school in Saskatchewan, so I've seen firsthand like how climate change has been affecting the prairies. And I mean, I think it's super cool that gene editing can sort of help out in that region, but that did lead me to another question. Do you think that there's any misconceptions about gene editing or about your field in general? I, so so basically, uh, I'm not sure anything that there's a misconception at the moment on gene editing. Yes, the people who are against any new development, they are they are against for everything. Right. I can even give you example when the hybrid breeding, which is the conventional breeding, when it is started in 1915 or something. So people were against the hybrid breeding as well. So people were definitely were against uh, the GMOs. And, uh, you know, people, because I think we have some, left, we have to take some, you know, you know there are some faults from us as well, because we didn't talk to the, the community is properly in a way, you know, so what's the benefits of that particular, but, but anyway, so there is a stigma there. So people are, were against GMOs, but when the gene editing uh, comes in the field, I feel even it will remove some of the bad perception of the GMOs as well, because in GMOs, we are introducing a foreign DNA into a cell, right? In, in the gene editing, we are not doing anything like that. There's one part of the gene editing is, which is in which we are just tuning or tweaking the gene because we learn from the nature. In the nature, there are wild species and primitive species. We are resistant to diseases, biotic stresses, abiotic stresses. And when we compare based on the sequences, sometimes there is very little differences. The question is, can we specifically change those nucleotides in, in, in the already growing crop and make them better, right? So there's no foreign DNA, right? And it's all natural, right? So in a way, I feel even gene editing will change that misconception. But still, we have to do a lot of things here. We need, just like you guys are doing this podcast, this is great, great, great thing. That's why I was so interested to do that. But basically, we also need to teach people. We have to provide a scientific perspective of those things. So, you know, that's why the social sciences are also very important so that we can work together to deliver a message correctly, honestly, uh, wisely, so that people can understand how we can help the world and a growing population in future. That's such a good answer. I completely agree with you with how we need to improve education. It's kind of what we're hoping to do with this podcast. Um, another question that's sort of like a follow-up to this one is what's sort of the most exciting thing that you're seeing emerge in your field right now? Are there any new developments that you want to share with the public that they might not have access to? So, so basically, first of all, we, we already talked about the gene editing and CRISPR-based um, uh, technology, which is, that's one of the things which I feel is a fascinating and revolutionary in my field. But at the same time, because what I'm seeing these days, that multidisciplinary things, you know, for example, AI, 
you know, artificial intelligence or, you know, machine learning, how we can integrate these tools with these new developments and make them even more efficient, right? So, so basically, you know, so, so we can, we can be very precise what we really want to do. So means I can, I can say that those developments will also be helpful. For example, and you will see soon in, in next few years, even either from my lab or from other labs that maybe the, the CRISPR may be even further advanced, which we have not even thought about, you know, um, uh, so, you know, there, there is a possibility of those kind of new tools coming. So, so, so that's what I think, right? It is a, I believe sometimes the tools are available that how we can integrate them together, multidisciplinary. That's why I mentioned about the social science. We work to, together to deliver our messages so that they can reach to our communities and they can understand well. Yeah, and I guess following up on that, machine learning is such an interesting field because it's advanced, I think, so much in the past five years. We've gone from having these pretty, we've gone from having image recognition algorithms to having ChatGPT and machine learning that's capable of parsing these massive sets of data and coming up with very realistic predictions. So that leads into our next question, which is, you know, how do you think that AI tools like ChatGPT are becoming more accessible with research? You know, like those things becoming more accessible with research in everyday life. How do you think that's going to change your work? And what other technologies are transforming the kinds of things that you do? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so basically these both things are, are actually very much revolutionary. So if I talk about machine learning or artificial intelligence, for example, previously when we, we are actually selecting varieties, right, we have to go to field and grow everything, every single plant, millions of plants, and select, or we can select visually, or we can select by microscopic eye, you know, with the microscope, or we can check their DNA, and based on those markers, we can select, right? But now, for example, sequence based on the sequencing, we, we, you may have a huge data, and analyzing each single plant or cell, it will be complicated. But if you have artificial intelligence or machine learning type tools, you can even sitting on the computer, you know, identify the best desirable genotypes or varieties which you can efficiently provide to the people. Means, you know, it's a matter of integrating those things. You know, it doesn't mean that previous things are wrong, but they are a little bit slow. We can expedite it. And it and the new tools are even more precise. So in that precision. I think just like a precision in a gene editing to precisely tweak something and these artificial intelligence and machine learning tools are also doing precisely selecting the right thing based on the genomics. In my view, I think it will be revolutionary. Oh yes, you also asked for the chat GPT, right? So I have not answered that. So yeah, so if you allow me to answer that as well. So also with the, it's a great tool actually. So but basically in my view, I think uh, we, uh, as, as scientists, sometimes our communication is not that great to the layman. And with the chat GPT, I believe the communication will be a lot better and we can, we can provide our, we can, you know, provide our messages and, uh, you know, to the many communities and, you know, in, in their way of thinking, not means we are not biased, but, you know, it, it in layman language, people can now understand 
uh, how we can uh, uh, you know make our messages or deliver our message better yeah it's really cool um one of the things that really interests one of the things i think that's really unique to an academia environment is that you can kind of have the intersection between all these fields that can happen and you'll meet with all kinds of researchers who have these really cool ideas about things that you've never even heard about. So what made you decide to go into academia? I'm wondering. Very nice question. So it's from, from my childhood. Actually, I, I, my, I, I brought, uh, my brought up was in a farming type uh, atmosphere. First of all, it, you know, that's why I was in agriculture. Uh, and then uh, in, during, uh, during my undergrad, we, uh, you know, days, I met one of my professor, Dr. Darshan Brock, uh, who, who who's not anymore in this world, but amazing, amazing scientist, amazing guy. So he was a, a head of the, uh, you know, International Rice Research Institute for, you know, did, you know, played a very big role in the rice breeding and rice genomics and stuff like that. And he taught uh, us a course on biotechnology. And it was eye-opening. And that's how I become even more interested that why can't I use these tools and integrate them in my program? At that time, I was not even aware. Sure means that I will be in a professor position or something. But then I, at that time, I thought I may go abroad and learn the best technology. And if I got an opportunity, I will apply them and, and help my communities, agriculture community. That's a great answer. Um, this is sort of a personal anecdote, but I know my grandfather came over from Punjab as well, and he was not in the same field that you are, but he was a physics prof. Um, I'm just wondering if you sort of felt like you weren't always on the same playing field coming over from an international point of study in Canada. Like, if you would feel comfortable speaking on that. That would be amazing. Can you repeat the question? I didn't answer the last part because there was a voice. Um, have you always felt like you were on the same playing field as maybe people who are born here? Or have you faced any struggles being from the international? Well, so the same professor once said to me, or not to our class, that there's no alternate to the hard work. Right? So... You know, I, I, I still remember that. So the basically, well, sometimes I feel maybe my pronunciation, my communication, my way of talking may be different, right? Or some people may have a problem with my accent or, you know, you know. But for example, if you are hardworking and if you are passionate, you are dedicated, right? I'm sure, you know, there will be not any problem. Otherwise, I may not be in this position and, you know, anymore. I can't, uh, I can, you know, if you have a passion or dedication for something and you are really sincere about it, I'm sure you will get a chance, especially uh, country like Canada, where all are welcome here. So um, I love Canada and I, I feel they have given me a great opportunity so that I can serve the community. So, you know, there's not any single system with, with the, where there's not any flaws. In anywhere you go, you, there, there will be some positive in it. It, it depends upon your pers own perspective as well. Right? Whether your perspective, positive perspective or you are a negative person. So I think if you are really dedicated and you want to really do something for 
for community you know without any bias i i, I think i i think uh, your dreams can can come true and you can do it that's such a great answer um one other question that i had from your previous um answer was how do you think biotechnology can help us solve the climate crisis so so basically as i said there's there will be 9 billion people right so means uh, uh, biotechnology is one of the tools in a toolbox which can do things very precisely if we are not using biotechnology i can i can tell you or assure you that we cannot be able to cope with the we cannot able to sustain this climate crisis i can tell you the reason is because as you also mentioned that is changing so fast right so we have to expedite uh, uh, you know our research as well so basically if we want to do a fast improvement and by now the tools like gene, gene genome editing and artificial intelligence or you know machine learning things if we you we are using those things together and the the variety which we were developing previously in 20 years or then with the speed bring 10 years with the gis genomic editing we can do 3 to 5 years you know so you can cut all the time so and also you can do things precisely in the same variety many different things you can improve their quality you can improve their resistance or tolerance to biotechnological stresses and at the same time you can improve their yield you know all the yield will be indirectly changed by you know making them tolerant tolerant plants or you know so be, so basically i think without biotechnology you know it will be difficult but at the same time it does it doesn't mean that other tools are not good but you know as as the tools are evolving currently these tools are you know best or efficient and we have to use the best thing for example if someone asked me today you want to go back to you know in some country or maybe in australia or something you want to go by sea or you want to go by air you can still reach to australia by sea but may it may take 6 to 8 months there is a possibility or maybe 3 months right who knows but by, by air you can you go, go 15 in 15 hours or something from you know for uh, to sydney or some other place so example is there there are tools right so new tools new new way of you know traveling right so same way in the science their tools are evolving and we want to use the best tools uh, and you know which can make our system efficient for sure that's really we really do want to improve efficiencies that's a really big that's a really big i think focus in any kind of biotechnology So one thing that I'm wondering actually you say on your website that you're creating the plant version of the fruit fly so I'm assuming Drosophila is this model organism in biology and there's so many well sequenced genes for it and we know so much about its development so can you explain what you mean by this in plant form and you know what prompts you to follow this research path this particular research question actually jumping genes were actually very fascinating to me you know and it actually attracted my students lord when when I show them the genes are jumping from one place to another place so in drosophila actually first of all i i may say that jumping genes were actually first time identified in plants and by barbara macklin talk in during 1950s in corn or maize plant right so but in drosophila similar type of actually jumping genes or transposable elements found in 1960 right but drosophila become a very much a great model as you said 
that just to understand the generics, you know, uh, because we can generate so many mutants in Drosophila, either by transposon or by many other ways, right? So the idea here is that I want to make to our crop plants in the same way so that we can mutagenize them. So we brought heterologous transposon system or jumping genes into barley and oat. The idea was to understand each and every gene present in these genomes so that you know we, we can create mutants and then relate to their function. So uh, that's why I said on the website so that it becomes fascinating. That's the reason you are asking me a question. And I want that people ask me a question why you are doing that. If I don't put that sentence, people may not ask me this question, which is an excellent question. Your research on molecular amnesia found in maize plants is like super interesting. And I found it super cool how there was a connection between human health and epigenetics and plant epigenetics. Um, can you explain a little bit about transposon silencing and what you found uh, to do with maize plants with that and what you mean by epigenetic amnesia? Thank you very much so for asking this question. Uh, so, so basically it relates to the transposable elements and jumping genes again. So first of all, there are many type of jumping genes, you know, in that particular study, we were talking about mu element, which is also a transposable element. So the, basically, when I say molecular amnesia, that, you know, generally, it the studies are done, which says that once something epigenetically silenced, it remains silent. But we have some escapes. So we analyzed those escapes and found that why those elements which supposed to be silent now awaken, right? So while studying that, we found some positions in the genome which, can, which were actually protecting them, right? So that was, that was, it. That was the first time in any you know, plant science or epigenetic studies where we have shown reversal of epigenetic silencing. That's what we call it, molecular amnesia. So, so in, in, in that, this is, you know, but when we when you consider that, for example, if they're jumping genes, they jump from one place to another place, and they, if they remain active, it will definitely mess up the whole genome. And we know now that, you know, these jumping genes or transposable elements are not only present in plants, but in vertebrates, in drosophila, in human, in everywhere. And so therefore, any organism genome must have some mechanism to silent them. But they, those mechanisms are not changing their nucleotides. They are changing their expression, their activity. If you are doing that, then it means it's epigenetic because you're not changing any nucleotide, right? So it, it may be because of methylation, it may be because of small RNA, right? So, so if you check that carefully, then you will find the impact of that study will also not only the plants but other organisms as well because you can find similar similar type of protective mechanism a similar type of silencing mechanism methylation related epigenetic type methyl uh, you know mechanism which can impact all the organisms not only plants that's why uh, you know it, it, 
I always feel that this was a very fascinating study, which will have a very bigger impact, not only increasing the yield of crop plants, but also, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, find treatment for the diseases in future, how to, you know, uh, you know, remove or put more methylation somewhere. So means uh, if, yeah, so that's how I, I feel that these are all integrated. Can you explain a little bit more about how exactly the epigenetic amnesia will affect the yields of these plants and sort of like? So, for example, as I said, the transposable elements or those uh, jumping genes we use to identify genes which do something. For example, there is a gene which can which can tolerate heat, which can tolerate other abiotic cells or PHS or maybe or maybe a disease, if we don't control them, then the yield will be declined, right? But if you, if you put that resilient gene, you know, then maybe they they will cope with the disease and stress and we have a more yield. And there are some other, you know, transcription factors or other genes which are directly involved in the yield as well. So the main idea here is you know, with the epigenetics and with the with that um, transposable elements to identify and discover the reliable genes which can can be tweaked, right? For example, if, for example, I can give you one real example from my work. So, after molecular amnesia, I followed that research to the PHS. We found a key gene in the epigenetic machinery, argonauts. Which, which are actually associated with pre-harvest protein. So, so now we know that if it is less expressed, then they are more tolerant. Question is, can now we use gene editing to make them less expressed and make them better? Right? So you, that's, you learn some basic things, then you apply those basic things and you know, improve the either as a yield or disease or any other trait. Make sense? Yeah, for sure. Your team looks at a bunch of different, a variety really of plant pathways and plant systems. And one thing that I'm wondering is why is it really important to focus on transcription factors related to plant phase transitions? Yes, so yeah, again, thank you very, very much for asking this question too. Uh, the task, first of all, we need to know the transcription factor. I'm sure you'll note what the transcription factor is. The protein which binds to the promoter of a gene, right, and which regulates its activity, right? In simple words, that's a transcription factor. So there are some plant-specific transcription factor we call it SPLs, you know. So that's, that's where we are working on them. So those transcription factors, if they bind to the promote, you know, promoter of the gene, the gene will be active, right? And then it will give a signal to the plant that you change from vegetative phase to, for example, reproductive phase. Just in simple words, right? So it means if you if transcription factor is not bound, it may not happen, right? So, but in plant development, there are so many transitions. Even from dormant seed to germination is a transition. I'm actually going beyond that so one transition from vegetative to re reproduction. And there are transitions between these transitions, within these transitions, right? So basically, one small thing to another small thing. 
small leaf to bigger leaf is a transition right so means the you know from from boot leaf to spike development is a transition right so there there are so many transitions right so those but when the transcription factor binds there are very small motifs on the promoters and that's where my gene editing things come up can we remove or delete or add that particular motif in a promoter and change everything right so now i can give you a real example i want to love to give real examples for example we we want to you know cultivate some crop and we don't want that it should reproduce because we need a green forage right we want to delay it so we know which this transcription factor will will do something phase transition from vegetative to reproductive reproductive phase if we cancel that then it will remain green and you have always a green forage can you see how much impact will be we can change working on the transcription factors that's the reason we are we are actually working on these transcription factors this is one example okay you talked a lot about transitions right with um, how transcription factors are sort of a catalyst in how transitions occur in fact Undergrad is a time where there's a lot of transition in a student's life as well. So I think that this would be a good segue to ask um, if you were going to give your undergraduate self some advice, either about research or in general, general life advice, what would it be and why would you say that? Two things. First of all, maybe more than two, passion, dedication. And I always say to undergrad student, for example, if you are a science student or STEM student, right? So basically, you guys must do a research internship somewhere in any lab because those internships will help you for critical thinking, problem solving, right? You know, troubleshooting, and, you know, analytical skills, right? Even if you are not coming back to the same science, you still gain lot of things in in a real environment i can i can uh, you know again if if i if i can go further the student who want to do that kind of internship and the good attributes for those students will be mainly you know some, not every students interested you know if you know if you are starting somewhere you must be punctual and make yourself available because in the research there are many steps otherwise you will miss some steps and you are still confused what was happening right so i think passion dedication persistence it should be there but for the undergrad student whatever field you choose in which you are more passionate you can choose that field but if you are a science student try at least one at least one you know internship project somewhere either in industry or academic setting, depending upon your interest, must do that. That, that. that will be my advice. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on our podcast and agreeing to be interviewed. And thanks so much for your answers. They were really enlightening and super insightful and we're really grateful to you. Mia, do you have anything? Thank you very much for, for the opportunity. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
it was super cool talking to you and I think your research on plants has made me more open to um, plant biotechnology in the future as a research interest and I hope it would do the same for some of our listeners.